behind, like they still had the projector, they still had all the equipment and everything, even though it was uh, not being of use anymore. But we were still able to kind of like walk around the whole theater and film everything the way we wanted to. Uh, now I don't think you can even get in that theater anymore. Like I think that, like I know, like you say, there are, there's always arts groups and et cetera that are trying to advocate, you know, some kind of good usage for that space. But the problem now is I think what we're seeing is that the, the real estate market in anywhere in, in the lower mainland in Vancouver is so enormous now, mm-hmm. so profitable that it's very tempting probably for the owners uh, of those places to, to have to sell. because, Or if they're renters, uh, for instance, if they're leasing, sometimes a lease it, when the lease comes up for renewal, it's just way too expensive. Like, right. So. I'm thinking of the ridge, and, and that's in your film, and, and it was really such sad news for everybody when, you know, I guess people knew it was coming, but, you know, when the news came that it was closing, and it was such a sort of an event place, you know, they had film festivals there, they had all sorts of events, and it was a really great place to go see films. Yeah, that that was actually really sad. I actually have a job, like a full-time job, where I actually drove by the ridge every day, and so it was like I could systematically watch it. I used to bring my camera with me, and I was actually filming it like every week that I went by. I noticed that little piece of it. Uh, first, it was, you know, they'd have signs saying, you know, we're going to be going out of business soon, I'd, and then it was, uh, and then they they were slowly closing it down, like shuttering it up, and so I, I remember I just documented and you, in the film, like you as you say, we actually document pretty well the the you know from the from the phase where the film was, the theater was actually kind of boarded up to actually like the systematic destruction so that literally, the, you know, the last shot that you see of the ridge being demolished is really just a, a big hole. Mm-hmm. So I actually went in there and tried to film a few things inside while they were doing construction as well. And I kind of, I knew I wasn't allowed in there, but I brought my camera in there and kind of pretended that I was lost or whatever. And I got chased out a few times by construction guys, but, um, I knew that this was going to be the end of an era, and I know that the ridge has been there, I think, since the 40s. So I know that it was an important cultural phenomenon of Vancouver, and it was part of the Vancouver Film Festival, too. And I think everybody feels really affected by the loss of that mm-hmm. theater, I think. Yeah. The memory I was thinking of was going to see Rocky Horror Picture Show just one Halloween, and, you know, they had all these contests, and people were dressed up, and it was just it was just such a great event to go to. And of course I've seen many things there. Do you have any specific memories of the Ridge? Well, I mean, I used to go see, uh, uh, you know, some of the films at the Vancouver festival, Vancouver film festival, my wife, Marie and I, who's the co-producer of the film. We used to always, we lived in Kitsilano. So we used to just take a walk sometime down there. You can see great double features for, you know, like almost every night they put out a good program. Um, they had like just lots of interesting films. I remember, you know, I saw like, uh, you know, that's where I saw Train Spotting and a lot of really cool films there. So I had, just like everybody else, I have a lot of great memories uh, 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 of seeing a lot of really cool movies and just really loving that experience of that theater. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is in the same category exactly in terms of being a palace, but it was a like a unique place, the Dolphin in Burnaby. And I live out in the suburbs and I always loved going to the Dolphin because it was like old school, really cheap. They'd show more like first-run movies and rumored to be owned by a certain motorcycle gang. Um, hmm. But then suddenly it was closing and I was like, oh, not the Dolphin too. You know, it just, you know, so I don't know. There's just no market for people going to movies. 
Yeah. I guess that's part of it. I think, And part of it is, you're right. I mean, we call the movie Broken Palace. Obviously, we do feature a lot of the old majestic kind of cinemas. But we also do, you know, show some of the other theaters as well that maybe they're not stereotypical palaces, but they're uh, very important parts of people's upbringing and their culture and theaters that have existed for anywhere from 40 to 75 years, which are just as important. And we have a few theaters like that that we show uh, in the case of the Dolphin, um, I think we also shot at the Clova near Langley. And I think the problem was what a lot of those places is now with the advent of digital projection is like places that used to always show film and have projectors. Now they have to change over to all the digital production mm-hmm. projection. And sometimes that costs upwards of $100,000 to make that switch. And a lot of places are finding that it's just financially it's just too onerous to, to spend all that money to switch over to digital. Yeah. So it's it's like the loss of the kind of slow culture of going out and going to movies and enjoying the night, but also the loss of this beautiful aesthetic. Like when I compare it to the Coquitlam Cineplex where I live, I mean, it's a horrible nightmare of like the decor and the lighting and the food. It's just like you feel like you're in this toxic kind of wasteland it's the opposite of a palatial experience yeah i agree i go to that one sometimes too i live in the suburbs as well and sometimes i go to the big cineplex um and it does make you realize like for me i'm 50 years old so i kind of remember like what most of the movies i went to it was like a standalone theater where the the movie would just play in a theater and would play in only that theater and sometimes if it was a hit movie like jaws it would play in that same theater for 6 months. Right. So when you went to that movie to see jaws it was like the whole community was all coming out to that theater to see that movie. So we would run into people and it was a sense of community and everybody sort of sharing the same thing. But now sometimes too with these big uh cineplexes is sometimes they'll show the movie in Vancouver it'll be playing at in like a hundred screens all across the lower mainland. So it's kind of fragmented and you don't get that sense that people are all coming together for one communal sort of almost spiritual experience of coming to one single theater to all share that experience together, you know? Mm-hmm. And like we all benefit from the changes like, you know, Netflix or DVDs or whatever. Like, you know, it's nice to have that, that convenience, but what makes me sad is like, they're not taking the buildings and doing something with them. Like, they're not preserving the buildings, and that's really horrible. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, really, a lot of these buildings have been, you know, like built like sometimes close to 100 years ago. And whether it's a movie theater or it's just a architectural splendor, I mean, it's really something that's a really important part of our heritage. And I think you, people really, you know, it's the old cliche, they don't really miss what they have till it's gone. And that's kind of like what it's like. And, and I think that. Um, you know, it's really sad. It's kind of sad because I, I think that, you know, we're definitely a better society and, and we're better off, you know, having that balance between new technology, old technology, new architecture, old architecture. I think we live a more, we just have a better life, I think, when we have a sense of the past and that makes it enjoy our present all the more, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we haven't worked to, our city is not, you know, on a gray day when you can't see the natural beauty, it's not a nice looking city, right? We we haven't put that work into, when you go to other cities that actually do preserve their their heritage buildings, I mean, you know, it's ridiculous. Um, so 
talking about it. So there's actually, yeah, it's an impressionistic film. It's not a typical documentary with kind of talking heads and stuff. And there's actually an actor in it who's very beautiful. Tell me a bit about her. Cause she, she's sort of more of this ephemeral figure that is throughout. Tell us about that image you wanted to create of her. And Yeah. Well, we used uh, Kristen Brown, a local actress. Um, she's a great actress. And what we did, we found that uh, when we shot a lot of the stuff, uh, the footage of our originally of inside the theaters, the old theaters that were closing down, we thought we kind of looked at that footage and we thought there was just a little bit something missing, like maybe like some connective tissue that audiences could kind of like take that journey with. And then we had the idea, well, you know, why don't we just get like, you know, part of the whole the evocative nostalgic feel of these old theaters? Why don't we actually get like an old time kind of usherette? So we got her to, you know, in costume and everything, and we thought it would be much better for the film to have for, to have that one presence of that one person who takes the audience on that journey. She literally opens up the doors of the movie theater at the beginning and invites the audience in, and she kind of walks them through all these all this, old, beautiful old theaters. And then through, their, through her eyes, she starts to see, become sad at the, destruction and loss of a lot of these theaters so we wanted the audience to really identify through that nostalgic character so that was really why we kind of decided to put her in there and um and we're really glad we did because you know people that see the film they they tend to remember her and they they it just it's just something that you know really humanizes the whole aspect of the of the destruction of these theaters Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so she's sort of representative in a way of the beauty and then cutting to the scenes of just like like rubble and bulldozers and yeah no I liked I liked her a lot she was amazing so what do you hope comes of the film in terms of response of the people that see it well like I said we're just in the we just finished it so now we've started submitting it to like Canadian film festivals and sort of international film festivals because we've really seen through you know all what's going around the world that this is really an international story you know it's not just vancouver there's um uh, and that's probably why we also didn't identify the theaters in the movie we wanted everything i mean of course if you live in vancouver you know that these are vancouver theaters but we wanted to have that kind of feel so that anybody in any city in the world could identify with the idea of these theaters being destroyed or being forgotten um so that's basically you know we want we feel that it has a universal theme you know that people i think this is obviously happening everywhere in the world whether it's movie theaters or just heritage buildings that we talked about that that are tend to be endangered right now and uh i think it's just hopefully we wanted this film to really strike that chord with people and and also just serve as a reminder sort of like we want to celebrate the memory of these glorious theaters that have been a really integral part of our culture and history. And at the same time, you know, just also give people a little bit of a bittersweet uh, warning, sort of like, hey, you know, like just, you know, we should all fight to really save these types of things because they're a very important uh, part of our society. Mm-hmm. Speaking of glorious theaters, I noticed a clip of the Fox Theater in your film. Correct. Yes. So that was glorious in its day. But actually that sort of has a good part of the story and that's been taken over by people that care about it and have renovated it. And I was just there last week and it looks so beautiful inside. That's right. And it's actually drastically improved. 
Yeah, I mean, sometimes, I mean, obviously, you know, like there are some theaters that maybe have, uh, don't have quite the same kind of glorious past and, <laughs> and, and reputation as certain other theaters. But, you know, at the end of the day, they're, like you said, like, I mean, once someone took over that Fox Theater and they restored it, they were able to do really cool things with it. I know they have a lot, it's sort of a mixed space now. I think they have like comedy and improv and, um, you know, like some kind of theater and DJ music events, and events, yeah. music events. So, I mean, it's sort of like the, I, I love the idea that anybody that thinks that it, it actually serves as a good reminder that for people that say, well, you know, it's just an old wreck, you know, it, it doesn't serve any purpose. We can do turn it to something else. But I like the idea that there are still people here that really recognize the importance of that and that they can actually take something and regenerate it and really give it, give it back like a, a real, presence in the society and do something positive mm-hmm. with the theater. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, that's great. Anything else you want to tell us before we, we go? Um, well, just, uh, basically, you know, thank you for having me here and having us here and giving us a chance to, uh, talk about this subject and which we find very near and dear to our hearts. And, uh, and again, the movie is called Broken Palace and we're hoping it plays the Vancouver Film Festival in September, October. And, uh, um, basically, uh, support, uh, keep supporting your independent movie theaters as much as possible. Yeah, definitely. And you can find more information about Broken Palace on the Next One Productions website. So that's www.nextoneproductions.ca. So thank you, Ross and friends, uh, for coming in. It was great to have you. So we're going to just leave you with some public service announcements. And when we come back, Sahara's going to take over and play her interview with Jay Wilanowski. Mel- <laughs> I don't even know his name, so that's why Sahara's taking over. Okay, well, so we'll be right back on The Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. I went to residential school. I was just eight years old. Gaila Kasla. My name is Gennargi O'Sullivan of the Klawitsis Nation, originally from Turner Island. You're listening to a window exploring the legacy of Indian residential schools. Jason White Bear is one of our youngest panelists. He is a residential school survivor. I said all my relations in three different languages. Those languages were taken away and given with this one here that I've mastered in residential school. And they told me that once you go there, he says, you're not going to come home with this anymore. You're not going to come home being able to speak Nehewewewen. You're not going to be able to speak. But when you do go, what I want you to do is I want you to try and master everything that they give you so that they can never fool us anymore. In my generation, we're at the point now where we understand the nuances between the languages. We can say, Bonjour, Anin. Uh, I wish I knew a little bit of Arab, but you know, the point being is that we're all sitting around here and we're very learned people. We're very knowledgeable. We know how to say, uh, You know, to, to, to say a little bit of each other's language nowadays. And that's just us as this language. And I think that's a direct result of residential school is because we always ask each other, where are you from? Well, how do you say this? How do you say that? So that when you run into somebody else, you're allowed to respect them and, and say, Tanse, how? Bonjour, Anin. 
So regardless of what was taken away from me during my residential school formative years, I haven't lost the ability to see. And so it, was, it is with this that uh, I thank each and every one of you. Uh, I'd like to say, and that's Cree for I'm grateful for everything in this land. I had to learn that from a, a kukum because I was speaking in front of chiefs one time and I said, I can't speak the language. So she taught me that little bit. Thank you. You have just heard at Window exploring the legacy of Indian residential schools. Both my mother and I attended St. Michael's Residential School in Alert Bay, B.C. This is a part of a larger project called Resonating Reconciliation that engages community radio as a tool to help define what reconciliation is. Resonating Reconciliation is meant to help reconcile all Canadians to their shared history. This is the work of the National Campus and Community Radio Association, the Red Jam Slam Society, and this station. Resonating Reconciliation is also supported by the Indian Residential School Survivor Society and is funded by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. To hear more, go to www.ncra.ca slash resonating. Whoever said money can't buy you friends obviously wasn't a member at CITR. When you become a member, you get the Friends of CITR card with incredible discounts on Commercial Drive and other areas at Bone Rattle Music Limited, High Life Records, People's Co-op Bookstore, Audio Pile Records, Bad Bird Media, Band Merch Canada, Vancouver Music Gallery, and Pandora's Box Rehearsal Studios. To find out more, visit us in room 233 of the sub on the UBC campus or go online to citr.ca. Hi, we're back on the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. We just had a nice talk with Ross Monroe about his short documentary, Broken Palaces. And now I'm here with Sahar again. Yay. We had a really good time at the the Folk Festival Mm -hmm. on the weekend, didn't we? Yes, that was a really good day. Yeah. Um, What what stuck out for you about it? Um, I think I really liked the ambience and like the diverse age demographic. You had little kids and really old people too, so it was nice. Um, yeah. Yeah, like there was a lot of, well, there was a lot of Kitsilano hippies for sure. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a great day. It was kind of gray. Um, but yeah, no, I enjoyed it. And we had our little CITR mm-hmm. area and people That's came true. by and, you yeah. know, they mm-hmm. Rohit was really great, like chatting up people about um, that's CITR. true and eventually the sun peaked out though so it was yeah. quite nice mm-hmm. later on during the day um, what was I going to say and then we were near stage 3 so we saw a few bands throughout mm-hmm. the day Well, you know th- there were some duds I have to say in my opinion <laughs> um, yeah there were there were a few bands that um, it took them a while to set up and like I feel like that kind of irritated the crowd even though it might not have been their fault yeah but. And I mean, it's a taste thing too. I don't really like kind of bluegrass. Like, mm-hmm. and there was a one workshop because I'll have these workshops in the day where different groups come on stage. So the Como Mamas, they're like these huge African American women from Mississippi with like oh, um, deep gospel voices, yes. like the real deal. And then they had these two kind of lame, white, <laughs> wimpy acts that played more than the women from Mississippi. 
and yeah. and once oh and then it was just this kind of went in a dismal low point when this kind of um just like a wimpy white singer sang what's love got to do with it by tina turner oh yeah and i'm like why are you singing this Be- and she's just like like i can't even she's so she was so bland i can't even think of anyone to compare her to like a taylor swift or something and then you know these big women from That's mississippi true. are kind of you know it just it didn't work well it was you know mm-hmm. there was some odd wo- workshop combinations um the performance that i saw with jay Malinowski, and i think it was the nauticals and typhoon that was also a very odd combination even though they all fell under the theme of um maritime music right but um yeah like there was um it wasn't really a collaboration it was just one band playing in the center of the stage with like the others attempting to chime in but kind of looking a little clueless Mm -hmm. um, yeah i mean i think they don't do enough planning on those workshops like they're supposed to be really good so then they can just jam out and i think yeah. I didn't see that happen. But on right? the other hand, there were some workshops that were really, really good. Like um, Lemon Bucket Orchestra. Did you get a chance to no, see that? No, but them? I heard you guys talking yeah, about them. Yeah, Rohit and CJ are like huge fans. And um, they were really, really good. And they did a workshop with, oh my gosh, I don't remember their names. But um, I think they were like an African music group. And this other, uh, uh, I really don't remember their name. But um, there was a workshop with like all these... Um, bands that had numerous um instruments and it was really really good oh good and like the whole audience was up dancing yeah so. yeah yeah and then we all headed over to see Sion kuti and egypt 80 at the end of the day and so they were really great um oh, i missed out on that <laughs> what i missed out on that oh right because yeah. you went to interview jay but um uh-huh. the oh i mean they were just kind of what i expect in terms of like super groove like Afrobeat groove. And like the Uh, more they played, the more locked into the groove they became. And you're just like, uh, the crowd loved it. And Siun Kuti was like, he had the best rock, I wouldn't even say rock moves. He had the best moves I've ever seen on a musician ever. Like the way he moved his body. Oh, yeah. I was just like, I mean, Mm -hmm. it was stunning. Like James Brown is what's coming to my mind, but I don't know even what James Uh Brown is like. Um, but they were really good. And actually just something struck me, um, as I thought about it. So they had a song called strong black woman and the lyrics at first I was offended by the lyrics because he said at the beginning, we need women to help change the world. And I was like, um, hello, right? Like mm-hmm. we've already changed the world. And oh, then, yeah. and then the lyrics were like, women should be able to vote. Women should be able oh. to go to school. And I'm like, um, hello and at first I was offended like oh isn't that kind of misogynistic and then I went away and I thought oh my god like I'm just ethnocentric in the sense that I take it for granted that we've changed the world I take it for granted that we vote and go to school because I've never known anything else but in other places Mm -hmm. they're still fighting for that I mean and I just went oh man like yeah I'm right out to lunch and it and in fact it just Mm -hmm highlighted it in my mind that women are suffering out there of course yeah I mean it seems like um that he's kind of stating the obvious like yeah obviously women should have the right to vote they should be able to have education but it's not a universal thing not everyone has it yeah and the women they had on their stage oh you wouldn't have seen them you know in those rap videos women 
do this sort of booty shaping. <laughs> yeah. They had these women that were in these mini African sort of print mini skirts and they had beads all over them. And they were booty shaking like you've never seen. And they it's unstoppable. And I was like, oh, my God. Um, but anyways, after that, I kind of uh-huh. left. I was kind of done. And on my way out, I walked by stage three again by where our booth was. And the Korean percussion band was playing. Okay. And they were phenomenal. Like, they had oh. the whole crowd up on their feet. Like, they were having more of an impact on the audience than, oh, okay. than the African oh. band. Like, people were, like, clapping along. And they were just pounding on those drums. It was – so oh. it was – it was good, but I'm going to shut up now because you did something really exciting. <laughs> yes, I managed to interview Jay Malinowski. I really wanted to interview him, so um, initially I was told that the interview was cancelled because I did um, request an interview through the media tent, but I don't know why it just didn't go through, and then... Um, so I just went over to the media tent, and one of the volunteers, um, he offered to escort me backstage, and he um, he told me that it would it would probably be a really short interview and like I probably won't be able to ask all my questions. But um, but it was great because like um, Jay was actually really, really nice about it. And he um, stayed for a good 20 minutes, even though the interview is only five minutes, because there was so much background noise that ended up overshadowing what was being said. So um, I had to reduce um, the majority of the interview. But um so we basically talked about his new album, Martel, which chronicles the life of Charles Martel, his ancestor. And um, so basically he traces back his roots and he kind of constructs this story. And um, he also has this upcoming ebook called Skulls and Bones, and it complements the music. And um, yeah, so we talked about that and we talked about his upcoming projects and what it was like performing at the folk festival because it was his first time. And um, yeah, so I think I'm going to play the interview now. Okay, great. So just a second. Okay. I'll just keep talking while that plays. What's that button you just pushed at the top? This is my first time playing at Fest Festival. The red button. My oh, name is not Jay. Listening. I well, I was actually interested because I read. Um, it's playing. I ended up here. Okay. This is my first time playing at Fest Festival. Okay. It's a huge honor to play. Um, I mean, uh, the band I played in before, Better with Sound Clash, I, I don't know if. I always knew, uh, as growing up in Vancouver, uh, like, just up in Carousel, I always knew of this, but the music I was into was punk rock, was, I go down to see the Slam City Jam, I mean, Rock from the Crib, No Effects, DOA. So I, when we started Bedouin, I knew that we'd probably never get asked to play such a traditional festival, and I know how much the heritage they have here. I think that what what has always fascinated me about Canada is our ability to create a narrative which makes sense to the immigrants that came here first. Yet all of us are immigrants and we are all displaced. We are all people who came here looking for something else. 
And so as much as I'm saying it's about Charles Martel and as if it's like some Canadian heritage piece, I mean, this is a man whose mother was beheaded by Louis XIV. Came here and fought with the British and they gave him land. But he was an angry individual, right? So I found that a fascinating boilerplate to create a story. Because I think that if I look at my father's side, I mean, obviously my last name is Malinowski. So my father is also someone, or his, our, my grandfather came over during the war. And so the real question of Martel is not, uh, was he French or all this stuff? It's really, are you who you are because of the vast set of historical circumstances that have made you talking to me right now when we're having this conversation? Because if we were, if we didn't have this passage, me and you would not be talking. And of course, yeah. And so, like, it's pretty amazing that right now we are talking. Well, my grandfather always talks to me about it, and I found it, and I think it made it made more sense once you. I think in life, like, people are are put in your path, and you're like, my God, why did that happen? <laughs> what? Why did that happen? Your entire music, right? And I understand you have an ebook coming out soon as well. Can you tell me a, bit, a little bit about your book and whether it complements your music? I really wanted to create. A, I love creating a world. I think that you create a world, and it is my favorite. I loved when someone created a world you could exist in. It wasn't just a band. It wasn't just. It was like film, okay. a lot of things. I love it when you get inside something. Yeah, because, I mean, ultimately what you do is a, as someone who really, I mean, I love writers. I love people, and I'm not, I don't mean like writers, like whether they make books, but uh, someone like Joe Strummer from The Clash, he made me feel like I was in England. Okay. Like I was feeling his, yeah. uh, his experience, and I think, um, I find that I find that is so valuable as a, as a writer as, as 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 a human you as a human like you're like thank you for doing that thank you for like letting me in on that. Um. Okay. So. When I was going through my grandfather's notes, there was a name Patience Phipps. So that was such a beautiful name for a girl. I mean, and, and, and I also think it's so, uh, I thought, oh my God, this guy Neymar Martel uh, passed away when he got swept overboard and he drowned off the coast of Boston on a schooner trying to look for money and leaving Cape Breton. And I was like, I want to write a song for him and write it about this girl Patience Phipps. I love that name because it's, have patience. What should we look forward to in the coming year? Is there anything specific that you have going on or any festivals you'll be performing at? I'm going to go back to Spain and uh, I'm playing a festival there. Um, I get most of my inspiration from Spain right now. So do you have any advice for I think always write from your experience. I mean, my favorite writers have always been like the ones that they write from their own relevance. Don't try to be something that you're not, and don't don't try to be something that you uh, you've never experienced. Because who you are is valuable, and I think a lot of times in life we don't think who we are is valuable. We're not a valid human. We're not, our experiences are not as good as somebody else's. I gravitate towards art and 
or any artistic venture is because it lets us know that our experience is okay. We're we're fine. Do you think people interpreted your music the way you intended it to be interpreted? I think I, I think I think however people interpret anything is their prerogative. I think that you you have to just like you know once you make I mean I've you know I've written songs that become bigger than what we thought they were going to be. That's not my property anymore. That's that's the public's property. Welcome back. You're listening to CITR 101.9 FM and that was Jay Melanowski from Bedouin Sound Clash. And um, his new album, Martell, is available now. And there is more information about that on his website, jmalinowski.com. So now I'm going to play a song called Patient Phipps by Jay Malinowski and the Dead Coast. To understand more about fashion, we asked CITR student executive and fashion expert Jonathan Q what fashion means to him. It's just aesthetically something that's so ostentatious. Typically, typically. I mean, because of course, I mean, it's also, you know, I mean, 
uh, when, when you say fashion, I think people are talking explicitly about uh, consumerism as opposed to someone who buys, like, uh, like you know, let's say, you know, someone buys a if you really want to know more about fashion, come on down to CITR in the Student Union Building of UBC and pick up some of our merchandise à la mode. Nous avons t-shirts, sweatshirts, socks, and coffee mugs. But it's also very aesthetically gripping. To keep you styling in support of the station you love. Isn't that right, Jonathan? Well, actually, is it? Because, I mean, you know, I was going to say because of the cultural vacuum that we exist within, but then, you know, uh, really, fashion today is kind of derived from the European idea of couture. And that's been around for centuries. Devil May Wear, Lucky's Comics, Neptune Records, RX Comics, Red Cat Records, The Regional Assembly of Text, the Rumpus Room, The Wallflower Modern Diner, and Woo Vintage Clothing. Wow, it sure does pay to be a friend of CITR. To find out more, visit us in room 233 of the sub on the UBC campus. Go online to www.citr.ca. Keep smiling, keep shining, knowing you can always count on me. But Could be global, trance, spoken word, rock, the usual and the weird, or it could be something different. Oral Tentacles, Thursdays 12 to 6 a.m. at CITR 101.9 FM. back listening to the arts report on citr 101.9 fm i wanted to talk about the game of thrones uh art show so it's looks like a really cool art show um and we're gonna get whitney on the line as soon as we can to talk about the show um yeah why don't we play something from the film festival why don't you bring oh okay it's working let's call whitney why don't well, you can just put her on air. We'll just make the call to Whitney here right now. Hi there. My name is Brandon. And my name is Mormon. Do you need help finding yourself? Do you have questions you're too afraid to ask? Worry no more. We got your back. Because we are two university students who have all the answers. Uh, just kidding. We'd like to think that. But what you can do is tune into All Ears at 101.9 FM every second Wednesday at 6 p.m. To get the best advice that we can offer. So shoot us an anonymous question. At ask.fm slash allearsubc and we'll answer it live on air. And, and honey, honey child, we'll, we'll be all ears. ears. Hi. Okay, we're back on CITR. It's been a bit of a freight. You know, and the mood went just went void, of course, like five minutes ago. So I'm not surprised. Whitney, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Thanks for having me. Oh, good. It's so good. Well, I got um, your email and I just, I liked the Game of Thrones fan art show theme. Yeah, it's uh, it should be really exciting. 
so I'm not, I have to say like, you know, I've heard of Game of Thrones, but I don't mm-hmm. know much about it. So tell me okay. a little bit about it. <laughs> okay. Um, well, it's a longstanding book series that um, George R.R. R. Martin, I believe he actually wrote them about 15 years ago. Um, but the kind of, the story really picked up a lot of steam when he started the HBO series. So that's kind of blown up. And I think it's become one of the most popular shows on HBO. And, um, yeah, with the, the recent season just ending, we kind of wanted to do um, a fan art show. We've had a lot of interest about it, and people keep asking, you know, if we're going to do stuff like that. And there's the actual um, the touring show for Game of Thrones is coming here in August, so it's going to kind of tie in with that as well. What do you mean the touring show? So they have like a – it's a – I don't really know how to describe it. I haven't seen it yet because it's coming here uh, August 16th. But it's going to be at the Peony, and they basically have a display of some of the costumes, and I think they have the, the Iron Throne and props and stuff from the show that people can go and check out. So it's kind of bringing that, that fandom as well. So, so it's like a, like a medieval kind of fantasy show? Yeah, it's kind of like a cosplay, but just for Game of Thrones, I think. I think is the general idea. Oh, I mean the show itself, the Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely set in a, a quasi-medieval world. It's completely fantasy. Um, I know from my own kind of uh, <laughs> dorky research on it that he bases some of the battle scenes and some of uh, some of the things that happen in the books off of real historical events, but the, the basis of it is entirely fictional. And who's your favorite character? Um, that's kind of a hard one. I mean, it depends. I like to like the bad characters, just because I think they're given kind of the short end of the stick on a lot of stuff. But, um, I mean, a lot of people's favorite is Tyrion Lannister. He's great. He's played by Peter Dinklage. I love Peter Dinklage. Um, Yeah, so I think he's probably one of my top favorites as well. And so tell me, like, what... There's a lot of people that have come together that are fans enough to make art about Game of Thrones. So, So why is that? Um, I think it's just something people have really gotten on board with, and people that are artists in general have really taken to um, creating images of the character's likeness and creating scenes from the show. And um, I think before the HBO show, there wasn't a lot of uh, visual um, kind of information for people to draw on, and now that they have that, it's really easy to create fan art for it. So I think it's really blown up in the art community that way. Um, as soon as I started putting out the idea, I had tons of artists emailing me and wanting to be involved and wanting to submit pieces. So it's it's been a really cool turnout and gotten a lot of attention. What kind of art has, has been generated for the show? Um, I have about six animators from the local animation studio Titmouse who have contributing pieces, so mostly digital artwork. Um, and I think some original work as well. I have a couple tattoo artists who are uh, doing some particular prints, um, a mixed media artist. So it's going to be a lot of variety of, of different kinds of stuff, which I'm really excited about too. It's not just one genre of art also. And and it also looks like it's going to be sort of an event in itself with like costumes and and different things. Tell us about yeah. the event yeah. part. Yeah, yeah. We're really encouraging people to uh, to dress up. Um, we're going to have a gift certificate prize for the best costume, so I hope everyone kind of contributes and participates in that. And um, Academy Duello, who's like the local sword fight and kind of archery medieval 
um, fight school in Vancouver. They're going to participate and do a little fight demonstration, so that'll really add to the atmosphere. And we're going to be playing kind of Game of Thrones-themed music. And, yeah, we're really trying to bring a, bring a whole kind of nerdy fandom atmosphere to it. Well, it sounds really great. Yeah, yeah, we're all super excited. What are you wearing? Oh, my God, I haven't even decided yet. Um, I'm probably planning on going as kind of a general mix of House Stark, uh, which is one of the, the big houses in the show. Um, but I don't know if I can fully commit to one character. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow, well, that sounds great. So it's the Game of Thrones fan art show, Friday, July 25th at 8 p.m. Yeah. At the Fall Tattooing and Artist Gallery, which is at 644 Seymour Street in Vancouver. Um, and what was I going to ask about that information? I can't mm-hmm. remember. Now. How long's the show on for? So that's the opening um, event. Yeah, the pieces are going to stay up until August 31st. So they'll be up in the gallery available for sale and people to go and check out until that time. And um, we won't take anything down even if it sells, so people can still check it out. And um, we're hoping a lot of the artists are going to be at the opening as well, so they can kind of self-promote and uh, be available to talk to people as well. Excellent. Well, that's wonderful. So thank you so much. We were sort of at the end of the show and sorry we got on a little late. Um, Yeah, no, that's totally fine. But that's wonderful. I look forward to the show and I hope to come see it before the end of August. Great. Yeah, I hope you can make it too. Thanks so much for having me. For sure. Thank you, Whitney. Okay, take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. So we're just wrapping up. All Ears is coming on next at 6 o'clock. So we're just going to kind of actually wrap up so they can come on. Um, But it's my birthday week this week. I'm turning 42 on Saturday. Yep. Yep. Oh, there's Wade. Hi, Wade. Uh, He always makes me smile. So I decided it's my birthday week, so you get to do just whatever you want, right? Of course. And that means I can play a hit on CITR. Ooh, what are you going to play? I'm going to play, because I was thinking, okay, what song that might be a hit that's like kind of been a theme song for me or something that's really Mm -hmm. kind of been something I've listened to a lot or been an important song? And there was a few, and then I decided Eminem. I've been listening to a lot of Eminem. And this one, it wasn't the easiest year. And uh, this one always gets me through a rough time when things are really just, oh, it's so bad. I always listen to this song. So so apologies to those who might be shocked to hear a hit on CITR. So this is uh, Eminem, Till I Collapse. And join us again. And thanks, Sahara. That was a great interview with Jay. Thank you. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. It was fun. The Folk Festival is a lot of fun. So you're listening to CITR Arts Report with Sahar and Sarah. And we'll be back next week between 5 and 6. And this is Eminem Tall I Collapse. Spilling these rats.